This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, continuing with the proof and discussing the Christological-slash-Biblical argument. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. The Christological argument is elementary at its core. If some of the claims made about Jesus are true, then God exists. Sounds simple enough. I think it's fair to state that any biblical argument can be subsumed by the Christological argument. Maybe not in all ways, but in order to accept the Christological argument, you must accept that the collected books and letters of the New Testament, and therefore the rest of the Bible, are reliable, authentic, or better yet, authenticatable sources. Objection! Before we get to the argument, I'd like to raise an objection based upon the lack of reliability. I object to any evidence being presented to the jury that is based upon, relies upon, or is directly stated or quoted from the New Testament or the Bible in general, Old and New Testament based upon the lack of reliability and authentication as well as its lack of probative value when balanced with the substantial risk of prejudice it presents. I briefly addressed hearsay and relevant evidence in a prior episode. It's hard to argue that the Bible is not relevant to Christology, but is it reliable evidence? Of course not, and I feel confident in stating that it is definitely hearsay. Because this is a legal objection, which requires argument related to the admissibility of possible evidence, it's one that's taken up outside the presence of the jury. The admissibility of evidence is a ruling made by the presiding judge based upon the rules and precedent established by case law. We want you, the jury, to base your verdict on reliable evidence. You normally, as a juror, wouldn't hear these arguments related to the admission of evidence. If disallowed, you just wouldn't hear that alleged evidence. But I've made the unilateral decision to allow this particular jury to stay in the courtroom. It's my imaginary courtroom after all. So what are my objections and to what rule are they pursuant? I'm glad you asked. I've already conceded that the Bible is relevant to Christology not only relevant, but downright necessary. What about hearsay? Are the passages in the letters and books of the Bible statements made by an out-of-court declarant that are being offered into evidence to prove the truth of those statements? The answer is undeniably yes. I propose that it is fair to state that the passages found in the Bible qualify as hearsay. But that doesn't necessarily prevent those passages or the Bible in general from being admissible. There are some hearsay exceptions. Let's explore those and see how they apply. This is going to get a little bit tedious, so stay with me.
Rule 802 of the Federal Rules of Evidence is the rule against hearsay. It states that hearsay is inadmissible unless there's an exception provided for by law. Rule 803 lists exceptions to Rule 802. I'm only going to list the main categories under the rule since it's rather lengthy. Each main category has additional subsections defining it. We will discuss the definitions and those subsections if the main category is arguably applicable. The rule is as follows. Rule 803, exceptions to the rule against hearsay, states that the following are not excluded by the rule against hearsay regardless of whether the declarant is available as a witness. And it lists 23 different exceptions based on this idea of, of uh, reliability. I'm not going to read the list right now. Number 24 is actually one that was transferred to a new, another rule, uh, which is Rule 807, and it's the residual exception. I'm going to read that um, partially because uh, what is required under it. It requires the statement is supported by sufficient guarantees of trustworthiness after considering the totality of the circumstances under which it was made and evidence, if any, corroborating the statement, and two, it's more probative on the point for which it is offered than any other evidence that the proponent can obtain through reasonable efforts. So those are the rules. There are some others that apply to a witness that is unavailable, which of course would be any supposed eyewitness. How do the rest of these rules apply? Assuming we agree that the Bible, including all the books, the letters, the individual passages, etc., qualifies as hearsay, we can move forward with determining whether or not any exceptions apply. The last exception, which is stated in Rule 807, is the residual exception, like I said before. I can see how, upon first read, it may appear to be the best argument by the prosecution for admission. To some, it may enter the picture as the only reasonable one. Well, don't get ahead of me. There may be individuals that think that other exceptions can be argued, and so we'll grapple with them one at a time. I'll do my best to make it less toilsome than it sounds. Here we go. Number one, present sense impressions. A statement describing or explaining an event or condition made while or immediately after the declarant perceived it. Yeah, so anyway, these two guys that came running out, like the one guy had on this light blue shirt, you know, it was like this light blue, um, I like Hawaiian shirt, I want to say, you know, um, but they were both wearing masks. No, dude, it was like purple. He was wearing a purple shirt, man, and, and he had a hat. No, dude, he had like totally a, a, a blue Hawaiian shirt. I, I'm talking about the first guy, man. The first guy, he had a totally like a blue Hawaiian shirt. Anyway, so they come busting out, and it was the coolest shit I ever saw, man. And then they jumped in this car. It was this great Nissan. I think it was a Nissan. Like, one day. It was this, you know, little two-door 
job, and, and then they took off. What? No, man, not out of the bank, dude. No, shit. Out of the laundromat. What are you talking about? Is there any portion of the Bible that qualifies as admissible hearsay pursuant to this exception? It's probably best for argument's sake to apply our analysis to the New Testament writings since we're searching for evidence of Jesus. The Christological argument is completely dependent upon the New Testament being accepted as mostly accurate historical accounts written by the authors whose names accompany the writings. Most New Testament scholars agree that the oldest of the Gospels, or the oldest written account of which we are aware and have in our possession regarding the life story of Jesus, is the Gospel of Mark. It is also accepted that this Gospel was written around the years 69 to 70 AD. This is important because Jesus of Nazareth, if the man existed, entered Jerusalem, was prosecuted, and given the death penalty pursuant to the law, Incidentally, I suppose he would have been an indigent defendant, and, if in our system today, could have possibly been a client of mine. He should have asked for a lawyer. He died sometime between 29 AD and 33 AD. Was the writer of the Gospel of Mark an eyewitness to the life and death of the man Jesus of Nazareth? I think most scholars would say probably not. The earliest writings, of which we are aware, that refer to Jesus of Nazareth are from Paul in his first and second letters to the Thessalonians. These are believed to have been written between 50 AD and 52 AD. Paul, by most evaluations, the architect of the Christian church, the post-Jesus protagonist in the New Testament, and influential beyond measure in the growth of Christianity, was mainly responsible for the expansion into the Gentile population and the ultimate disassociation with Judaism. He was not one of the original twelve apostles, and he never met Jesus. No one that authored a writing included in the New Testament ever met Jesus. I've heard people make arguments related to the apostles associated with the epistles, like Peter and James and Jude. However, Most scholars understand that although these may have been written by possible followers of these men, they were probably not written by the actual apostles who traveled with the walking, talking Jesus. If the original documents were written or even transcribed contemporaneously by followers of the eyewitnesses to Jesus as they shared their story orally, then the oldest manuscripts that we have are still only hand copies of the original document or written accounts of oral testimony. And again, this is still an educated guess, and so must be viewed with skepticism and marked as unreliable. Educated. You know, that's a word that conjures certain assumptions. For instance, schooling of some sort. In modern times, it may refer to higher education or postgraduate study. 
At the very least, we usually presume literacy among the educated. But we go further in our modern daily lives and usually presume it among the adult masses as well. Literacy simply cannot be assumed or presumed in the first century A.D. Peter the Apostle, just for example, according to the New Testament, was a fisherman. It's more than probable that, just like Jesus, he was illiterate. That makes it hard to read and write, I'm told. I'm not sure how anything written in the New Testament can be viewed as a present sense impression. Referring to the above definition, any statement made in the New Testament that is describing or explaining an event or condition involving the living human being Jesus is not being made while or immediately after the declarant has perceived it, because the declarant most likely never perceived it. And even if you want to give the believers the benefit of the doubt, which you aren't supposed to do, by the way, regarding the authors of the letters and the epistles in the New Testament and their physical contact with the man Jesus of Nazareth, they definitely didn't write about it while or immediately after they perceived it. This exception just does not apply. Remember, a judge would be making this determination based purely on the rules and law. You, as a juror, would not be faced with this question of reliability, unless it was ruled admissible and allowed to be presented to you. So far, I don't see how it's admissible, but we'll keep looking. The next exception to consider is number two, excited utterance. A statement relating to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement that it caused. I suppose one could argue that Paul's conversion story or any miracle described by someone that witnessed it qualifies as an excited utterance. Since Paul is the only author in the New Testament to whom we can somewhat reliably attribute any writing, it limits our analysis to him. Paul describes events, including his conversion, that can be viewed as miracles and I must presume would qualify as startling events. However, there's nothing to indicate that he wrote his letters while still under the stress of excitement that it caused. I don't see how this exception can apply to any biblical passage. Other than Paul, any other description of an event is at the very least double or triple hearsay. Each level of hearsay requires an exception. There just aren't enough exceptions to get us there. No way would any statement related to a startling event taken from the Bible, offered in order to prove its truth, be admissible as an excited utterance. There are other reasons to object to admission of any alleged statement of Paul. Because he is dead, we can't cross-examine him. His alleged statements are not made under oath, and so I object to any alleged statement of Paul in that it would be a violation of the Confrontation Clause. The defendants have a right to confront the witnesses. It's also important to understand that we don't have any original copies of Paul's letters. There are many who argue that a few of the letters were written by someone else, 
possibly by followers of Paul writing in his style, which was common. The letter to Titus and the two letters to Timothy are often called into question. It can easily be argued, and is, that none of the letters can be attributed to Paul. Even if they could, we're still basing any statement from the writings on copies and translations literally handwritten by someone else. We just don't have any way of reliably proving that the copies and translations that we possess are accurately transcribed copies and translations of letters written by Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul. Nothing in the Bible can be authenticated. It's not transcribed testimony of a witness under oath. I'm sorry to those who claim it as the infallible word of God. I guess you've never actually read it, or at least not start to finish. It's a mess, and not very advanced writing for allegedly the most advanced being. It's almost as if the word of God, infallible as it is, reflects the language ability and thoughts of the many different Iron and Bronze Age authors at the time of the composition. I guess God didn't know much about science or any details about the functioning of the earth and sun yet. Seems odd, since he created it. I guess he loved us so much that he thought lying to us and then creating rules so that the lie perpetuates and can't be questioned was a great way to enhance our lives and make us better. Was it a test? Why so many tests? Why intentionally send us down the path of ignorance? The answer's right there in the earliest portions of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Right after we learn that God created the universe, we learn that He created a man and a woman and placed them in a garden, giving them dominion over everything in the garden. But He had one rule. Don't eat that delicious-looking fruit from that very intriguing and temptingly gorgeous tree that I have intentionally created to stand out from the rest. In fact, I've pointed it out to you just so you can't miss it. I like to call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as you can see, not that important or interesting. Anyway, stay the hell away from it. God told Adam that they would surely die if they ate the fruit of that tree. So that, I guess, was the first lie. Because, spoiler alert, the fruit didn't kill them. But it probably scared the hell out of them. I know the argument can be made that God meant that Adam and Eve would no longer be immortal. But they didn't lose their immortality as a result of eating that fruit. There's also the tree of life, to which God forbade Adam access after his eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil, including placing an angel to guard it. God blocked his human creation from that immortality fruit just so Adam would not become his equal. He freely admits it. God does this in order to maintain power and authority. He specifically withholds immortality from Adam and Eve because they've been enlightened and they understand the difference between good and evil. Is that all God has going for him? 
Also, it seems in conflict with the later teaching, supposedly from this same awesome fella, that we're supposed to live our lives in such a way as to please him by doing good and avoiding evil. It would seem that if the stated goal or command is good behavior and the avoidance of evil behavior, and that would please him, then we could all just have a taste of that informational fruit and bada-bing, knowledge of good and evil. We could make a smoothie from the tree of life fruit and boom, we live forever in peace and harmony. Bob's your uncle, but God doesn't want us to have both. Why not? Wait, unless... It's just an overt attempt by some human beings to control other human beings. Nah. Can't be. So what's the lesson supposed to be for Adam and Eve, or the rest of us, for that matter? Don't you dare be curious? Just do what you were told? What was the terrible result? What did God view as the one thing he just couldn't tolerate if humans are going to live in paradise? Well, inquiry. Because inquiry leads to knowledge and wisdom. The forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil basically opened Adam's and Eve's eyes to the reality and truth of their own situation. That damn serpent just had to be so persuasive. But then again, Adam and Eve had absolutely zero experience, and seemingly God didn't bother to prepare them for anything, much less a slick-talking snake literally bearing a gift of fruit and knowledge. Just gotta taste it. To be fair, when a snake talks to you, you listen. I know, if a snake talked to me, I'd hear him out at least. I think the point that I started with was that we can't cross-examine anybody about it. Who answers the questions about the discrepancies and contradictions or the inhumane and genocidal actions cheered on by that loving God? Please don't point me to a different quote in the freaking Bible to show that it says something else or something different that allows for a different interpretation. It just proves my freaking point. If God wants us to know shit, including that he exists, and that we should unconditionally love that which we fear, him which seems cruel and abusive, doesn't it? Why be so damn secretive and confusing? Is he playing hard to get? Seems like he doesn't want us to know, or maybe that's what the humans that claim direct contact with him need us to believe. The owners of the secrets that you need are always seeking control. They first must convince you that you need those secrets, usually by convincing you that you are flawed in some way, and that they possess that esoteric knowledge, that secret knowledge, that will fix you and change your life, or afterlife, for the better.
That's the difference between them and me. I'll never promise you any result. I always tell my clients that a lawyer that promises a result is an unethical liar and shouldn't be trusted. All I can promise is my best effort and honesty, or as I usually put it, I promise I won't blow smoke up your ass. My job is to tell you the truth and advise you based upon whether or not I believe the prosecutors have evidence to convince a jury to vote in their favor and whether or not I believe I can make a convincing argument for the defense and then sometimes to make a convincing argument when one isn't apparent. It's that simple. I don't possess any knowledge that isn't available to anyone else who seeks it out. And I mean at a library, bookstore, or online, not metaphysically. The hubris it takes for an individual to think that he or she possesses knowledge that is only shared with them through some personal telephone line to Jesus or God, even if going through the intercessory saint like an old school telephone operator or whatever, is confusing and maybe offensive even though I'm personally not that easily offended. I must presume and believe that a person that claims to let God lead them or makes mention of feeling the presence of God or hearing God's voice is referring to whatever inner voice or dialogue they have. It's imperative that I presume and believe this. Otherwise, to me it seems that that person's inner voice may be a clinical matter and could be horrifyingly scary depending upon who or what is in control of that voice. Normally, hearing voices that instruct you, and more importantly, the belief that you must follow those instructions, is diagnosed as possible schizophrenia or some other dissociative psychological disorder. The threatening fact that an ordinary person Rational in almost every other aspect of life can be convinced and have faith in the prospect that knowledge or wisdom can just be revealed to him or her, or maybe even more dangerously someone else, by an intercessory spirit source with literally no study or inquiry is confounding. That an educated, reasonably rational person can honestly believe that faith and properly worded wishes are the key to that silent, secretive source is infuriating to me, to say the least. Nothing in the Bible qualifies as an excited utterance, even if it could be authenticated on some level. Every word in the Bible, New and Old Testament, is admittedly, in the book itself, written after the fact and not contemporaneously with any of the stories told. If we can accept that any declaration or statement offered from the Bible is being offered for its truth and that those declarations or statements are being attributed to a particular declarant or witness then it is incumbent upon us and the burden of the party that claims the truth of these statements to prove that they are actually attributable to the declarant or witness. Since we have no original manuscripts for any portion of the Bible, it seems like a waste of time to go through each hearsay exception. Can we accept that? 
Obviously, I'm discounting any of the writer's references to feeling the presence of God, etc. The same arguments apply, but it seems unnecessary to address whether or not writings concerning how someone else may or may not have felt are unreliable and inadmissible. With that being said, I believe I will try and speed through the remaining exceptions unless we hit a snag. 3. Then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition. 4. Statement made for medical diagnosis or treatment. Nope. And nope. 5. Recorded recollection. I feel like maybe I should address this one just to eliminate any confusion. This exception is one that only applies if it is a record that was made or adopted when the matter was fresh in the witness's head. It accurately reflects the witness's knowledge and is related to a matter that the witness cannot recall well enough to testify fully and accurately. It can be read into evidence if admitted but only can be an exhibit if offered by the opposing party. The same arguments apply to this exception, so nope. 6. Records of a regularly conducted activity. Nope. 7. Absence of a record of a regularly conducted activity. Now this one's interesting only in that it seems like it may be relevant to the non-believers. In order to present evidence related to the absence of any record of Jesus in any Roman archives or documentation, which was voluminous and regularly kept, we won't go there yet. 8. Public records. 9. Public records of vital statistics. Nope and nope. 10. Absence of a public record. Same argument as Rule 7. I don't want to repeat myself regarding possible usage by the defense. What applies to number 7 can be argued for number 10. Number 11. Records of religious organizations concerning personal or family history. Nothing in the Bible is a regularly kept record of a religious organization. Just thought that needed to be clarified. This exception addresses contemporaneous records kept regarding birth, death, religious ceremonies, and family records kept in the usual course by a church. For instance, my Catholic baptism, communion, and confirmation certificates are on file somewhere, I'm sure. How else would I prove how righteous and holy I am, and that I've received all those sacraments? When St. Peter comes a-callin', I need to know where to find the proper documentation before I file my notice of appearance. But does the Bible qualify under this exception? Nope. 12. Certificates of marriage, baptism, and similar ceremonies. 13. Family records. 14. Records of documents that affect an interest in property. 15. Statements and documents that affect an interest in property. Nope. 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 And nope. 16. Statements and ancient documents. The Bible does not qualify because its authenticity cannot be established as we discussed earlier. This exception, for instance, may apply to contracts or holographic wills, which still would have to be sufficiently authenticated, so nope. 17. Market reports and similar commercial publications. 18. Statements and learned treatises, periodicals, or pamphlets. 19. Reputation concerning personal or family history. 20. Reputation concerning boundaries or general history. 21. Reputation concerning character. 22. Judgment of a previous conviction. 23. Judgments involving personal, family, or general history or a boundary. Nope. 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 And finally, nope. There is that pesky residual exception. So let's discuss it. I mentioned it above because when first reading through the rules, it seems like a fairly broad exception. But if you look just a bit closer, 
and employ some of the, what we've already explored as far as application of rules, we can concede that pursuant to Rule 807A2, it is obvious that the Bible is more probative on the point for which it is offered than any other evidence that the proponent can obtain through reasonable efforts. This is undeniable. Based upon reasonable efforts by the believers, and I can attest to the efforts I made on their behalf at least, there just isn't any other evidence at all. But I, here's the rub. In part A1, it requires that, quote, the statement is supported by sufficient guarantees of trustworthiness after considering the totality of the circumstances under which it was made and evidence, if any, corroborating the statement. Unquote. What corroboration is there? What evidence can be considered in the totality of the circumstances under which it was made in order to support the guarantee of trustworthiness? Oh yeah, none. There's more evidence corroborating falsehoods in the four New Testament Gospels than there is evidence corroborating guarantees of trustworthiness. I hope I've addressed this hearsay issue effectively enough for you to understand that if the believers want to prove the existence of God and Jesus as his son and that he was crucified and rose from the dead to a jury, which is you, they most likely must do it without reference to the Bible, especially if the biblical portion being offered is done so to prove its truth. Please keep that in mind, because without the admission of the Bible into evidence, the so-called proof or evidence disappears, just like the need for a supernatural explanation for the weather or volcano eruptions. I don't believe we even get past the probable cause finding for the existence of Jesus without the New Testament. There just isn't any other source. Jesus is mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus, but only in passing, and he's really referring to James, the alleged brother of Jesus and the cult associated with him. It's also important to note that even Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews one of the believer's sources of non-biblical evidence, was written around 93 to 94 AD. This is still 60 years after the alleged crucifixion of Jesus, which means we can assume Josephus didn't actually encounter Jesus or any other individual that did. The other non-biblical reference used when arguing the historical existence of Jesus is annals written by the Roman historian and senator Tacitus, but this was written around 116 A.D., almost a century after Jesus' alleged crucifixion. Today, we can't even agree on whether or not photos and videos taken of modern events, even if we were there, are trustworthy and accurate accounts. Two people can see the same exact image and see completely different things, depending upon their perspective and predisposition. How in the hell is a document written many years after a particular event 
the birth of Jesus, for instance, by someone that could not possibly have witnessed the event or even met anyone who did actually witness the event, reliable proof of that event's occurrence. It's not. And I can't believe I feel the need to explain that any further, but here I go. To my kids, the 1970s seems like ancient history. It is probably difficult for them to picture a world before cell phones, much less computers. Think about how differently people viewed the world in 1970 compared to how they view the world in 2023, for instance. How many different versions of the Jesus story were floating around by the time Josephus or Tacitus mentioned Jesus? It is a similar passage of time between the crucifixion and their writings around a half a century to a century. I'm not sure why some folks think that people writing with primitive tools and using a more primitive form of human language and technique of storytelling were more accurate in their recollection and retelling than we would be now. I wish I understood it. Did you ever play the pass the secret game in class when you were young? It goes by different names, but basically the teacher would whisper a few sentences to the first student, and then that student would whisper it to the next, and on and on, until it made its way around the room. Did the content at the end of the line ever match the content at the beginning? And remember that no child, at least in my experience, within that classroom had a stated or hidden agenda or a higher calling that would lead them to obfuscate or intentionally change the facts in any way. I'll let you ponder that for a little while. Next, we play Duck, Duck, Goose. Love you. Mean it. (laughs) Thank you.